Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figger. Today, my guest is Professor Kok Chor Tan. We'll be talking about his new book, Justice, Institutions, and Luck, which was just published with Oxford University Press. Kok Chor is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. These days, those who think about justice tend to be egalitarian. Egalitarians hold that justice requires the equal distribution of something, or at least they hold that deviations from an equal distribution of that thing require serious justifications. Egalitarian political philosophers have long been divided over the details of egalitarianism. One may ask, what or who does the distributing? Why is equality the baseline or the goal? And to whom is egalitarian justice owed? A popular and in some circles infamous interpretation of egalitarianism called luck egalitarianism holds that egalitarian justice is primarily concerned with correcting the influence of luck on social advantage and disadvantage. The thought driving luck egalitarianism is that individuals should not be socially disadvantaged, or for that matter, advantaged, for features of their lives that have simply befallen them. Rather, social disadvantage and advantage should be tied to an individual's choices. Now, stated as such, this moral principle looks deeply attractive. But once one takes up the task of spelling out the details of a luck egalitarian theory of social justice, many difficulties arise. Just to cite one such difficulty, some critics have wondered whether luck egalitarianism would hold that ugly people are entitled to socially subsidized cosmetic surgery. After all, one's looks are a matter of luck. In Justice, Institutions, and Luck, Cockchartan formulates and defends a distinctive and original theory of luck egalitarianism. He holds that luck egalitarianism is concerned not with luck as such, but rather with the ways in which social institutions transform matters of luck into advantage and disadvantage. From this starting point, Tan develops a global luck egalitarianism. Now, there's a lot to talk about here. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Kakchor Tan. Hello, Bob. Welcome. How are you doing this morning? Very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to our new books in philosophy. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Oh, I'm looking forward to talking to you, too, about your book. Thank you for, uh, for joining us. Um, today, I'm talking with Kakchor Tan about his new book, Justice, Institutions, and Luck, The Site, Ground, and Scope of Equality which was published this year with Oxford University Press. This book provides a state-of-the-art 
uh, roadmap, I would say, to the current debates and political philosophy over the nature of egalitarianism. And it also provides a defense of Cocteau's own distinctive version of egalitarianism, what he calls institutional luck egalitarianism with a global scope. Um, the view holds that egalitarian distributive commitments apply at the level of social institutions rather than at the level of personal interactions. It also holds that the ground of egalitarianism, the reason why equality matters at all, lies in the distinction between what individuals choose as opposed to what befalls them as a matter of their good or bad luck. And finally, uh, Cocteau holds that egalitarianism, I'm sorry, is global in scope. Um, this is an exciting book. There are lots of moving parts, uh, a lot uh, to contest, certainly a lot to talk about. Um, but before we get to the details of the book, um, Cocteau, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Um, well, I well, perhaps I'll say a bit about how I came to be uh, interested in political philosophy. And right. as you may know, or, or as some people may know, I, I've done much of my work in the topic of global justice. And, uh, and I sort of entered into political philosophy with um, questions of global justice um, much, very much in mind. And, and then this new book also actually has a whole section on questions of global justice. Well, I, before I come returning to graduate school, I, I, at the point of the graduation from college, I had some vague idea that I might return to grad school to pursue a degree in philosophy with, an, you know, with, with a focus in political philosophy. But before I did that, I spent some years working in the United Nations you know, at, at, the, at, the, at the entry level. But one, what struck me while I was at the UN is the frequency with which the two competing norms that are, that are well known, but the two competing norms of international relations came to the surface in any serious discussions in the United Nations Security Council, for example, for human rights, democracy, and intervention. And the two norms are the norms of, of, of universal morality, as expressed by the, uh, the idea of universal human rights, and the norm of state sovereignty, right, and, and the idea of non-intervention. And right. these two um, competing um, ideas, if you like, within the United Nations Charter and you know, the competing norms of international relations came to the forefront frequently in any serious discussions, debates in the United Nations. And this sort of animated my interest um, in global justice. Um, and, and it seems to me that there's a sort of quintessential philosophical question here, quintessential, quintessential philosophical task here, that of trying to reconcile two competing ideals, reconcile two competing commitments. Right? And, and, and um, so when I returned to graduate school, I started uh, right, uh, and I, I began work on a dissertation on trying to make sense of the limits of international toleration, right? Um, is there an ideal of international or global justice such that any society, any state must comply with in order to claim sovereign status, right? Uh, is there, are there some universal standards that sovereignty is um, conditioned on? And that, that, that resulted in my first book, um, Toleration, um, Diversity, and Global Justice, in which I argued for a what we might call a cosmopolitan conception of global justice that that states enjoy sovereignty only if they observe not just basic human rights, but pretty robust standards of liberal democratic um, ideals and, and principles. Um, this sort of led me then to my second book, um, which is um, relate, re on, on global justice, but um, focusing less on what we might call political rights and more on economic rights. And the question in this book was that of economic, global economic justice. 
And um, but here again, the, the idea of plurality um, is very much in the forefront. The question is, um, how do we understand our commitments to people at large, right? And in terms of distributed justice to individuals at large in the world versus our more local and um, patriotic commitments to people in our own countries, right? And, and again, here's a tension, a, 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 a tension that we understand that, that anyone can appreciate, right? We believe that there are universal standards of right and wrong that, pl that apply to everyone, regardless of their relationship to you. On the other hand, it's part of common sense morality that people who are close and near to you or especially related to you are deserving of special consideration. And in the arena of global justice, right, the one, one obvious way this tension comes to us between universal conceptions of global justice, distributed justice versus patriotic and com uh, patriotic commitments and um, um, special concern of, of special consideration for your compatriots. And, and, and this book, again, tried to argue for a cosmopolitan conception of global distributive justice. And it's only, um, and, the, and, and the cosmopolitan ideal of justice sets the parameters, right, within which states, nations may pursue their own patriotic ends. Right? So again, there's a priority of cosmopolitan justice that, however, should give space to patriotic commitments. But, that's, but, the, but, but by giving cosmopolitan justice priority, it shows that um, um, one may exercise patriotic concern, show special concern for your fellow countrymen only within the confines right, of, of, of global justice. Right. Right. So, so these were sort of, um, and anyway, the, 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 um, so, so it was my, I guess in some, the many things that sort of influenced my, um, the way I, uh, my, my interest in global justice, but perhaps uh, one important influence was having worked in the, in the UN and, and, and having experienced um, uh, personally, the yeah, uh, important tensions within international relations theory and and, and uh, international relations norms that that are thought that um, philosophy is well suited. In fact, philosophy is geared to, to try to make sense of. Right. So you know, I did not know this about your background uh, working in the UN, but it is fascinating to hear um, or to discover uh, about a fellow philosopher, especially a fellow political philosopher. You know, when they have a background in actual real world politics. Uh, um, it's often illuminating. And um, now that you mention it, I could see um, how your background uh, at the UN has um, influenced uh, your your writing in general. Uh, there are many points in, in your new book where um, you use an example, for example, um, or you mention some fact uh, that I, I am very, you know, was very impressed with here and there saying, wow, well, Kakcha really knows a lot about international relations. Uh, and now uh, I, I, I see exactly <laughs> Uh, where some of that uh, has come from. Um, so why don't we move on to talk about the book? Would that be okay? Yeah, sure. Yes. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, the subtitle of the book uh, is the, the the site, ground, and scope of equality, and uh, these are uh, three distinct kinds of questions one can ask uh, about egalitarianism or about uh, egalitarian distributive commitments, and the book is divided into three parts according to those three uh, types of question. Um, so why don't we begin then uh, where the book begins, which is with a discussion of um, the question of the site of equality. Um, now, you advocate a view according to which um, distributive egalitarian commitments apply to uh, what we now think of as the, the basic structure of society following, uh, following Rawls. Um, but um, as you know, uh, perhaps better than uh, most, um, 
this is a, a controversial commitment. Uh, some people have thought that uh, if we're egalitarians, we need to be egalitarian across the board, including uh, in our individual, interpersonal kinds of relations. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you think the the uh, the site of equality is something institutional rather than interpersonal? Yes, um, you know that is a, a very interesting, I think, informative and um, line from John Rawls that I'll paraphrase here and say something like this: that um, justice shows the limits or, or shows the way, but the good shows the point. And I take that. I mean, that, that, that that's very. I think it's a terse remark, but it could be interpreted in different ways. And I, one one way I like to understand that statement is that, well, justice shows us how we should go about pursuing our ends. And particular justice main goals show us how we can pursue our ends uh, freely and equally with regard to other pe- people right, who may have ends to pursue. But it is the good, it's the ends themselves that shows the point, that shows the meaning of why we exist, of showing the meaning of why we do the things we do. Uh, it, it is what gives value, if you like, to, to our lives. right? So that's the aim of justice, to ma- mainly to show us the way by which we pursue our ends, and of course to show us the kinds of ends that we may have in order to pursue them, um, then if, if justice has that end, then to say that this is all encompassing, such that there's no space left, that, should, that, 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 that the good is to be defined and reduced to justice, seems to defeat the purpose of justice, right, on that understanding what justice is. Right? So, so put, to put it more generally then, um, to one, I take one of the aims of justice, right? Why we care about justice is that people have different ends in life, different values, different conceptions of the good life. But right? that's um, this sort of, let's, let's call it a starting point of any discussion of justice, that's being ends. Another presumption then is that not some, on many of these, there's no one good life to pursue. Right? There are many equally valuable ways of life. Now, some ways of life may not be valuable, uh, let alone equally valuable from my own conception of good, but that's but that doesn't mean um, that, that, therefore, I, I, I'm correct, right? That, that there may be um, different ways of life that are subject to reasonable disagreements. People can reasonably disagree about what is valuable in life. And I may, dis- I may accept that a way of life is not for me, but I'm, no pos- I'm in no position to say that, therefore, that those, way of, those ways of life, they're not, in compat- they're, they're not like mine, but to be disregarded. Mm-hmm. So if we, we have this idea that there are, that's a plurality of good, if you like, plurality of ways of life, plurality of conceptions of good. Um, as, as a second starting point, then the aim of justice is to set the background rules, if you like, set the background terms uh, by which individuals with different ends to pursue may pursue these ends on terms that are fair to others. Right? And so, so that, that means um, we, there must be a way of drawing if you like the ba- the boundary between the demands of justice on the one side, and if you like the demands and of personal pursuits on the other, right? And I take it right. My my argument in the book is that the institutional approach provides a way of approximating this boundary. We need to draw the line somewhere, and the institutional focus of the sort that Rawls and others uh, have argued for is a very effective way, feasible way of drawing the line between the demands of justice and the demands of personal life. Right. So, but can you tell us a little bit about um, the position on the other side of this? So, um, it seems to me, uh, although uh, I, I I tend to uh, tend to agree with you at the at the end of the day uh, about the institutional focus of justice, but it does seem to me that there's something uh, to 
the uh, G.A. Cohen style concern that, um, you know, again, to put it very roughly, well, if we really care about equality, then shouldn't equality be the overarching aim of our lives and not just the thing that happens at the level of our political institutions? Right. Yes. Um, so that's that's a very important question. It's, 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 I mean, and Cohen, whom you just mentioned, raised a very, I think, serious and difficult challenge for the institutional view. But I, so one way of responding to that challenge or trying to make sense of it, um, or trying to mute its false, rather, is that to, to try to get a sense of what it means to take that equality is the great goal, the all-encompassing goal right, of, of, mor- of mor- morality, if you like. Um, if, if imagine that equality is the dominant or the master goal. Right? This straight away will mean that any kind of personal decisions, actions that you want to make at a, at a personal level, at an interpersonal level, will have to be um, um, informed by egalitarian considerations. Now, if you think about that, that seems to be an overly demanding view of what morality requires of persons. Right? Straight away, it makes it very difficult even to, to decide whether I'm entitled by this cup of coffee this morning. Right? right. Um, what is, it, with, what, is that equality only motivated? Is that going to have egalitarian consequences? It's, it's, it, makes it, it makes it a goal that's almost impossible for an individual to try to realize. But it also makes it very difficult to live what we would ordinarily uh, accept to be um, um, uh, legitimate personal pursuits. Are you permitted to um, favor or, or, or give some extra resources to your child's education, like extra piano lessons on weekends or, or activities uh, that uh, resources that might be very well used, right? Um, uh, for for egal- social egalitarian uh, purposes, um, and if if you use them other other uh, in other ways. Mm-hmm. So, so the concern here is that if if one takes equality to be a moral goal across the board that regulates all of life, all spheres of life, we may have a kind of morality that is not suitable mm-hmm. anymore for human beings, right? And and um, if you want a morality that's fitting for human beings, given their alleged interests, given the things that they value, then to take equality as the dominant and the um, comprehensive regulative uh, principle seems to be demanding too much of human beings as we understand them. Right. So let me, let me ask one more um, uh, question uh, along these lines, because... Um, I could imagine uh, someone like Cohen um, responding uh, or reacting to what you've just said in the following way. Um, One might say that um, the fact that a proposed demand of justice would be really demanding and hard for us to meet should be taken as bad news for us, right. not bad news for the proposed demand of justice, yes. right? Yes. Um, so that demanding this itself, um, although it's a relevant consideration, I think, on anybody's view, um, maybe not Cohen's, but uh, on, on, on many other views, the fact that a demand is um, uh, hard to satisfy or maybe even really, really hard to satisfy. Right. I mean, that's a relevant consideration, but yes. could that be the... The decisive consideration. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so suppose we, um, well, that's not okay. So, so it's not the demandingness itself that will be the problem, but the, I guess, the scope of the demand that sort of leaves no space for personal life. So suppose we say that we, um, have, suppose we agree that justice should be focused on institutions. 
this leaves open a question how demanding should these principle, institutional principles be, right? They could be extremely right. demanding institutional principles. This still provides a way of drawing the line boundary. You know, then, then we have very strict institutional rules that then leaves correspondingly a, 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 a tighter space of personal pursuits. Now, that would be a fine, I think, with the institutionalists, with the institutional egalitarian, because that's still a feasible way of drawing the line. Right? But to say that equality has to um, be... Be, be, be not restricted to institutions, but to, to, to regulate, regulate all of life. Then this gives just, I, th I think it's not it's just the money, but just has, just there's still feasible space. There's no conceivable space left for individual um, um, personal pursuits. And so that, I think that's the, that's the, the concern here. Right? It's not, so it's not with demandingness as such, but the nature of the demand that, that it sort of um, removes, right? it obliterates any way of, uh, any space because it doesn't provide a way of drawing the boundary between justice and personal life. Now, so Cohen may have a complaint that um, the way we understand institutional rules, these rules are too lax, right? But the solution might be then to have stricter institutional rules, not to change the site of justice. Now, if he thinks that, however, we need to change the site of justice in order to um, give greater traction to our demands of, to, to our commitment to equality, then the question is, where, then what's the target now, right? How do we draw the line? And he says, well, we, there's no way of drawing the line um, but we do have to allow space for personal prerogatives, as, as, he, as he acknowledges in his work, right? Personal prerogatives mean those things that you may do for yourself, legitimately, right. inspire what morality demands of you, right? using a term coined by Samuel Scheffler. Um, he allows for personal prerogatives, but then the question is, how do we make sense of what, what, what counts as acceptable prerogatives? Um, there must be a, a, a theory, like an account, a principled way of making, allowing that, look, your demands here fall under the, um, category of permissible pers um, personal prerogatives, but not jokes, right? Um, you may, need to have a way of doing that rather than saying it's up to individuals, right? So the, the, the worry the Cohen's then is that unless he has an alternative as to how we can um, approximate the boundary between justice and personal life, um, there's a risk that his, his theory of equality might be um, not just simply overly demanding, but might defeat the purpose of justice, which is to allow persons to pursue their ends on terms of fair to others. Right. Excellent. Um, well, good. Um, let's, uh, let me move on now to the, um, to, uh, the, the, the second, uh, sort of question, uh, that your book poses, uh, with respect to, um, the so-called, the, the, what you call the ground of equality. Um, and, uh, you hold, uh, and uh, across a, a series of uh, not only this book but a series of of, of very well done uh, articles, uh, you defend a a view uh, that uh, I should say has gotten sort of a bad reputation in political philosophy over the past decade or so. A view called luck egalitarianism, um, and um, I want to get into the specifics of your own version of luck egalitarianism. Uh, in a minute, because it is a distinctive uh, 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 version. It's an institutional version. Um, but can you tell us, again now, just in general terms, uh, what you think luck egalitarianism as such is? That is, what, what kind of view is it? What does it, what does it hold? Right. So, so luck egalitarianism is the view generally that says that a person's life prospect, life, life prospect should not be less good um, be worse than another's because of bad luck alone, right? and that if there are any differences in distribution right, amongst people, it should be due to their choices rather than to circumstances outside their control. Right? And, and 
And the idea of lucky Gatunism is that if there are such inequalities, inequalities not due to people's choices, but due to their bad luck, then there's a need to mitigate right, this inequality. There's a need to, re- to move resources around so that resources do not, the distribution of resources do not simply reflect um, the, 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 um, the differences in people's luck. Excellent. Um, so let's ask now about what, about your particular um, version of luck egalitarianism, yeah. uh, which you in the book call a modest version of luck egalitarianism. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think it's important right. for luck egalitarians to be modest? Um, sometimes in philosophy, modesty is not always taken to be a virtue of a view, um, but uh, maybe that's a problem with philosophers. Um, but um, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the ways in which um, luck egalitarianism uh, can grow immodest and problematic and why you see the, oh. the the need for a more modest kind of proposal. All right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so the so the standard view of luck egalitarianism um, uh, is been subject to several um, quite powerful objections. Right? So one objection might be we might call reductive objection. It sort of says, look, if your if your view is that a person's entitled to assistance to or redistributive existence only if this is due to bad luck but not to their choice, then imagine this person who squandered all his earnings, his savings, his resources away and now is on the streets about, you know, going to perish on the streets or die of starvation on the streets. Are we saying that society owes this person nothing? So, it's, so it's, 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 a, it's a challenge against the lucky cat in view that its commitments issue in pretty um, counterintuitive um, conclusions, moral conclusions. So this is one um, uh, one problem that's been raised against the lucky garden view. Another view, uh, another, another challenge that's been raised, and it's a kind of reductive view too, I suppose, that says that, look, if really we're interested in um, mitigating effects of people's bad luck, then well, luck, <laughs> luck happens in all spheres of life. Right? One may be uglier than another person. Right? This person may feel himself quite un- 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 unlucky. Uh, does this mean that this person should be entitled to state-subsidized um, uh, cosmetic surgery. This is a pretty well-known objection that Elizabeth Anderson has raised against the lucky Gatian view, right? So, right. so lucky Gatian seems to be, um, to, be in a, to, to have too, too much to do, right? That is, it's, it's <laughs> an absurd view that it has, now has to be in the business of uh, compensating for people's bad luck in all areas of life. And this seems to be a theory that's going to exhaust itself, right? Um, so these are two, two, two main uh, concerns that have been raised um, um, against the position. Um, and there are others, but let me start with these two. Now, the, the problem I see is that the critics, and, and, and may, maybe the proponents of the view may, may be also themselves guilty of it, but, but, but the critics uh, certainly um, sort of treat lucky Gatrianism as a much more um, comprehensive doctrine than it should be. Right? It treats it as an account of the whole of morality, when originally the lucky Gatrian view right, is very much a view about distributive justice. Right, it's, it's, it hasn't, it's, it's not a view about what, how we should treat people, right, in general, across the board, across all spheres of life. But it's a view about distributive justice. And we understand distributive justice in a very special way. It's about how we allocate, right, um, um, resources, surplus resources among people in some kind of cooperative, productive arrangements, right? Then, then it has a much, very much narrow domain than some of critics take it to have. Right? So imagine that, so, so let's, let's search the last thing I just said. So we can say that there are two kinds of 
on different, the different domains of morality, right? There's the domain of humanity or human decency or basic human rights, right? This is the domain of, uh, um, that within, within such a domain, we say that, look, whenever someone's in need, no matter how it comes to be in such dire straits, someone should come to this person's assistance. Someone's drowning. It might be his own fault that he's going to this river when he shouldn't. Well, someone should help him. Um, someone's on the verge of starvation because he's been careless. Well, someone should help him. This, these are serious um, moral shortfalls. These are um, matters of moral urgency. We don't ask how is it he's come to be where he is right? or how she's fallen to the state she has. It might be her fault, it might be his fault, but it's of no matter because it's just a matter of human decency and um, um, basic human rights, if you like, that, that people are assisted when they are in such severe straits. Now, in matters of distributed justice, uh, the issue is quite different. Here we're talking about, look, I'm, someone's life is less well off because um, 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 he's been le less careful with his earnings or with his resources. And, uh, um, and, and um, the, the, the urgency of the question is quite different, right? So, so if, you if you understand um, distributed justice to be concerned with a very special domain, that of how to allocate fairly right, um, resources above the threshold of basic needs, um, then the, lucky, the claim that lucky egalitarianism issues in reductio uh, results in re, um, absurd conclusions is, I think, uh, avoided, right? Because the lucky egalitarian view says nothing about matters of um, moral urgency. It doesn't say, it doesn't say anything about this, um, what, to, what you do with someone who's um, um, deprived of basic needs. If the person is in need, um, some other kinds of principle kicks in. Um, uh, principle of humanitarianism, principle of basic needs come in. Right? As a theory of justice, right? Um, um, like egalitarianism is about how to allocate resources amongst people who already we presume have their basic needs met, right? And this sort of distinction between what you call humanitarian commitments and commitments of distributed justice, this this is not an I, I, I don't think anyway it's an arbitrary distinction. <clears throat> it's a distinction you find I think in people like Rawls and Thomas Nagel and. Uh, and, 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 and others, right? For example, in the law of peoples, Ross makes a distinction between distributed justice commitments, um, which, it, which has to do with allocating resources in a way that's fair amongst people where they are able to meet basic needs and a duty of assistance, right? Uh, which involves helping people who are able, unable to service uh, very basic urgent uh, needs. And he takes these to be this, this different moral aims. And of course, interestingly for Ross, he argues that in the global context, we have a duty of assistance, but no duty of distributive justice. Right? But the point here of this, this uh, my, my comments here is that if we understand that these are different, there are different moral domains here, um, then we can understand lucky egalitarianism or modesty as, a, as some, a principle falling within the domain of distributive justice. And thereby, this avoids the claim that lucky egalitarianism has uh, uh, absurd um, implications. Right? The, the people who make the charge right, are. I think they made a charge. They do because they take lucky guardianism to have a much broader scope or domain of application than it should have. Right, and but and and that that's an exciting component of the view. But you've got another move mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, that that that, uh, that you you lay out in in your book, which I also thought was uh, was was quite well done, um, which is to say that, and, and let me know if I'm getting this correct. Um, that uh, luck egalitarianism, despite the name and maybe despite some of the uh, more ambitious, um, immodest, perhaps, uh, proponents, that your version of luck egalitarianism is not concerned primarily or strictly, it's not obsessed with luck, <laughs> right? It's more concerned with the ways in which social institutions transform matters of 
brute lock into social advantage and disadvantage. Yes. And so the, it's not, um, so the, the Elizabeth Anderson style criticisms all think that, or seem to, uh, uh, be, be fixed on the idea that luck egalitarians have got a problem with, with bad moral law, or, I'm sorry, with bad luck and, and, and the moral implications of bad luck. Um, your view has got it that it's not really the luck that's that's the concern. Luck is neither just nor unjust. It's the way in which social institutions transform luck into social advantage and disadvantage. Is is that is that right? Am I getting yeah, you right there? That, that's right. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's the way in which the egalitarian, the luck egalitarianism, connects up with the institutional uh, uh, site, right? Right. Yes. That's so, right. So 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 the two ways of um, right, suppose we begin with the view, right? And so let me try to uh, defend the institutional lucky guardian view in two ways, right? One is sort of an indirect way. Suppose we begin with the view that justice is institutional, right? Ju- the thing, ju- justice has an institutional focus, but also justice comes about because of institutional arrangements of some sort, right? And, and Ross, again, has a very nice uh, phrase in one of his writings where he says, look, there's nothing just unjust about nature itself. It's what institutions make of these facts, natural facts that render things just or unjust. Now, suppose we begin with that without arguing for it, but because suppose we begin for that. And of course, the part on the book, the institutional argue, part of the book is supposed to argue for that, right? But suppose now we say, look, we have the, a case for the institutional view now, right? Now, let's try to see if that is compatible with luck egalitarianism. Can luck egalitarianism, if you like, then sign on right, to the institutional view? And one of the arguments I want to make my book is that, yes, it can easily sign on to that view without losing what is really important about the luck egalitarian view. So, you, so, so, so if you marry the institutional view with the lucky garden view, then you have the view that says that, look, look, look what matters from a point of view of justice, not what about na, 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 um, luck as such, right? But, it's about what, it's about what matters is how institutions right, make of these, of, of, of bad or good luck, what inst- how institutions if, like, translate um, um, these uh, matters of luck. Um, and that there's there's nothing, right? So, so with the first argument, there's nothing in lucky egalitarianism that precludes this special uh, and more limited reading of the lucky egalitarian idea. There's nothing in it itself that says look, it's incompatible with the institutional view, right? There's, there's, not, no, there's nothing, no, there's no, no basic premises in lucky egalitarian view that says it has to be read more broadly, more transinstitutionally. But that's not, there's nothing that precludes it being tied to the institutional view. And moreover, you actually have a more persuasive, more plausible kind of lucky egalitarianism. And, and and if you take into account the, the original um, purpose, objective of having to, uh, wanting a lucky garden view in the first place, tying into an institutional view actually serves that purpose very well. Right? So you 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 maintain the object of lucky gardenism by tying to an institutional view. There's no inconsistency there. There's nothing in lucky gardenism that says you cannot tie to an institu- institutional view, and that um, and and you have a more defensible view of of lucky gardenism. Right? So that's 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 um. There is, um, um, so this is sort of, I say, an indirect way of bringing the two together, right? By showing that there's nothing at odds with trying to bring luck egalitarianism to uh, the institutional view of justice, assuming you accept the institutional view of justice. And not only is there nothing odd with that, not, nothing inconsistent about that, you actually have a view of luck egalitarianism that is more persuasive, precisely because it's more modest. Um, and you don't give up the original purposes or goals of the luck egalitarian view, which is very much a the position within distributive justice. Now, but there is also a, um, a more direct argument, right? And here's that we need to have a way of 
when 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 lucky all lucky Gertrude views, we have to make a way of we have to have a way of distinguishing between what the kinds of luck that <laughs> that um that that we should be concerned with and the kinds of luck that people should take responsibility for. Right, Ronald Dworkin has made has sort of um, um, presented this distinction in terms of um, 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 brute luck on the one side, right? The luck that people are, can need not be held responsible for, and option luck, luck that arises out of people's choices. Luck having to do people's choices. So suppose I choose to invest in you know, some some stock, Facebook, for example, and now <laughs> out of that, <laughs> I'm not doing so well. But that's an option luck. I take responsibility for that. But that's an option luck, and and, and that, so there has to be a way of. So we just, the view cannot be cannot be one that says look all luck should be mitigated right the effects of all luck should be in and no luck um, and, and and only choices should be left free um, um, to, to 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 play play, play itself out um, so there must be a way of drawing the line between what walking calls brute luck and option luck and I try to argue in the book that one way of trying to make sense one way of drawing this line again is to take the institution approach to say that look um, in question in, in society what Really, the kinds of things that we, the kinds of luck that we take people to be not responsible for, the kind of luck that should not make their life less good than others, tend to be luck associated with institutions, right? Institutions like um, class, dif- dif- class, uh, class differences, um, educational opportunities, um, access to healthcare. Uh, um, um, these, these are the kinds of um, institutional um, 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 Conditions that 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 issue and luck, right? That we say people should not be, that people should not be um, responsible for, and that society should have a role in trying to mitigate. Now, and then on the other hand, there are different kinds of luck that people that arise um, between people's decisions within the rules of institutions. We tend to say that look, um, the rules are fair, and you play within the rules, and everyone's playing within the rules, and things don't turn out so well for you. That's your own problem, right? And we tend to. Um, for that view in society. So again, I, I, I take it that the institutional view actually provides a way, as it did in the you know, in the justice and personal pursuits front, uh, parallels that, if you like. The institutional view provides a way of drawing the line between the kinds of luck that from the point of view distributed justice, people should be held responsible for, right? The kind of things that happen to them if they play within the rules of institutions and the kinds of luck that they should not be held responsible for, the kind of structure, social, societal structure, if you like, that, 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 that um, um, that generate uh, differences and entitlements and benefits for people. Right. So, 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 to, so, so the more so, the, so the weaker argument is that look, there's nothing incompatible with bringing with 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 say if, with um, um, tying lucky guardianism to a independently argued for institutional view of justice. And the second, more I guess controversial view, but the stronger argument is that um, moreover, right, uh, understanding um, lucky guardianism. On this institutional view allows for a way of making sense or approximating or, or, or making a distinction between the kinds of luck that people may be held responsible for and the kind of luck that we may call brute luck that they need not be held responsible for. Right. So let's pick up on that. Um, excellent uh, answer. Um, so uh, the at the root of any version of luck egalitarianism, including around um, as your your responses have have been demonstrating, at the root of, of any of these views is this set of distinctions. Uh, on the in the first case, it's a distinction between luck and choice, mm-hmm. and then there are distinctions further to be made between brute luck and option luck, and maybe there's some other uh, uh, kinds of distinctions uh, uh, to be drawn further. 
uh, within even those categories. Um, but let's just stick with those those two um, levels of distinction between, on the one hand, luck and choice, and then between two different kinds of luck. Um, you're keen in the book uh, uh, to suggest um, that the luck-choice distinction, in particular, doesn't get entangled with certain familiar metaphysical quandaries about freedom of the will, for example, or um, sort of metaphysical questions about um, responsibility for actions or what it is to be an agent. That is, you want to um, keep luck egalitarianism and the luck choice distinction uh, sort of neutral or non-committal with respect to the deeper metaphysical issues. Yeah. But I could imagine, um, and, and I, I, I think I can understand why, why one, uh, why a luck egalitarian would want to uh, uh, keep his or her doctrine free of these metaphysical entanglements. Um, but I could imagine, um, uh, in fact, w- we can we can name uh, uh, some people who've written about uh, mm-hmm. distributive justice issues and luck egalitarianism. I'm thinking of Susan Wolf, for example, who think. No, the metaphysics and the moral psychology stuff is really what all of this is about. And one of the objections to luck egalitarianism uh, is that it gets those metaphysical and moral psychological commitments wrong. It doesn't understand properly the metaphysics of agency or misconstrues uh, something about the metaphysics of free will. And that once we understand these metaphysical, moral, psychological facts, uh, that's the real uh, uh, um, uh, point at which luck egalitarianism is vulnerable. So could you say something about yes. uh, about that? Well, that's, that's a very good question. It's it's a, it's a very very hard question. Um, <laughs> uh, <and thanks laughs> Sorry. For, yeah, no, it's, it's 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 good that you raise it. I, and I try to uh, consider this challenge in my book. And perhaps it's certainly. Uh, I mean, I agree. Uh, uh, I'll say that certainly my treatment is far from satisfactory, even from my. Um, own point of view, but let me say a few things just to assuage some of the concerns, or to see how um, so to make the best, if you like, of, of lucky guardianism. Now, suppose determinism were true—that is, that not there's no free choice. Right? Let's just suppose that were true as a metaphysical claim. Now, does this show that lucky guardianism, the luck choice principle, as I, as I call it, is invalid? What doesn't show that? It simply simply show that therefore um, that the principle has an application in our world. Right? The principle, the validity. Of that principle as a distributed principle, I think stands. It's not dependent on um, whether determinism is true. It just simply shows that okay, the principle is true, the principle is true, true, even though determinism is true. But then, unfortunately, in such a case, that principle has no application, right? So, I mean, okay, that, that's not very. Um, uh, it doesn't claim very much, but shows that the, the validity of the principle itself doesn't ride on metaphysical truth. And that's the story that I was trying to suggest in the book. So it just simply shows that okay, well then. Um, uh, everyone's to be responsible, uh, so no one's to be have responsible for anything, right? Across the board, the lucky guardianism, uh, and there's no, there's no space of choice as such, and every, everything else is good luck, determinism is true, and we, we should um, have to distribute everything else, and there's no, 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 the, 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 what's, what's inapplicable now in the lucky guardian principle is the, the, the space left of choice, right? Um, um, so so that, that'd be one implication, but it doesn't show the principle itself to be false. So, right, so, so that's what, what I was trying to get at when I said, look, it doesn't depend on the metaphysics of, the, of freedom determinism right? just simply um, changes the, 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 the application of the principle. Um, but the other point is that what kinds of inequalities are 
um, egalitarians concerned about, right? Social inequalities uh, that, that they get egalitarians excited when they, when, they, when they discuss these things, right? Um, so, so a lot of these cases are quite uncontroversial and, and they, they, they are inequalities that we all agree whether, um, whether we hold any particular view on the metaphysical debate about freedom of determinism, that we tend to accept that our inequality is not due, that the people should not be held responsible for. I right? suppose one person is better off than another person because of the class he's born into. Right? We, we all, I think, most egalitarians say, look, that's not the kind of um, 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 luck that we should think should affect this person's life prospect. They should have a better life just because he was born to a better class. And conversely, someone who's born to a poorer social class should have worse life or that um, or lack of um, having access to um, a, um, decent education, or lack of having access to healthcare, and so on, right? These are things that, uh, that, are, that, that we don't disagree about, right? And, and, and one of the points I'm trying to make in the book is that, that there's a core sort of agreement amongst egalitarians, no matter what their metaphysical commitments might be, if they held any, about these sorts of things, that we say, look, wealth due to inheritance, that's the kind of luck that we should try to mitigate. And most egalitarians, if they accept egalitarian, right, most political philosophers who, who, was, who are committed some egalitarian principles will agree that. Now, a person who has uh, poorer health prospects, poor, poor health because of um, um, lack of access to uh, medical care, uh, right, because of lack of, of uh, public health care, we'll say again is that this person is not doing so well because of bad luck. Um, and that there's no, the metaphysical debate doesn't come in at all. Now, a person who has suffered bad health because in spite of uh, information available to, available to her um, um, she, um, because she smokes or insists on smoking in spite of inv- information advising her to do otherwise. Now, we would say generally this person, you know, in some ways um, is responsible for a situation. And of course, if the situation, her situation is dire, humanitarian consider- considerations will kick in. But again, there's no disagreement here whether she is at some fault or not. We don't say, um, well, let's consult the metaphysical debate. Right? So, that's, uh, it's a, so as a society, I think we... Uh, very much in agreement here on what the kinds of things that we hold people responsible for and the kinds of things we don't, right? And I think that some philosophers say, look, we don't have the theory of what we hold people responsible for or what, uh, what we don't hold them responsible before we come up with a theory of justice. My take is very much that way around. We take it to be a fact, right, that the theory of justice must accommodate, that people shouldn't be held responsible for the poorer class that they've been born into. Right, or of their race or, or, or whatever, right? They should not be disadvantaged because of these things. We don't need a theory of justice to tell us that. These things, in fact, inform our theory of justice, right? So, uh, so the point here is that there is sort of a certain convention, societal conventions we have on what is it that people should be held responsible for? What is it they, um, uh, to take res- uh, they, 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 they have to take responsibility for, for, for themselves? And what is it that society should um, do? do, do um, to take responsibility for, right, between what's really luck and what's not. Um, this this sort of con- consensus on that, on, at least on the main on the main issues, right? and that um, these um, these we come to agreement on these things uh, as a society without any having taken stance on the metaphysical debate on the, the, the um, determinism uh, freedom debate, right? Right. Um, so that's, that's so, so 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 at least the core cases that 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 motivate discussions about equality, I think, are very much. Um, I don't say transcend, but they, 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 start, they, they, they sort of bypass, if you like. They, 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 they're debates we engage in by equality without ha- uh, having an, the need to take a stance on um, the deeper metaphysical question um, um, about freedom and determinism. Right? You might, one might, you know, so again, to borrow another um, um, 
um, uh, phrase from Rawls. I said, look, um, the lack choice principle is social, it's not metaphysical. It's what we, we haven't counted what society takes some certain convention here about what people may be held responsible for and what they, they are not to be held responsible for. And we have a theory that responds to, to, these, to, this, to, this, to this convention rather than to, um, to, to think that we need a theory to come up with that. Right. So um, would you say that, uh, I, I want to move on uh, uh, in a second to, um, to, the, to the remaining uh, bits of the book, but mm-hmm. let me ask very quickly now, um, would you say then in light of, uh, of, of the kind of response you've just given that some version of the luck choice distinction uh, is internal to egalitarianism as such. That is that the luck choice distinction is not simply a principle upheld by luck egalitarians, but any version of egalitarianism has to um, perhaps even at its core draw a distinction between what people do and what Simply befalls them, and the the, the significance uh, uh, of that uh, of that difference. Yes, that's right. Yes, you put it well. That's right. So, so it's one of the points I try to make in my book that no matter what kind of egalitarian view you have, a lucky egalitarian view, or it's opposed as as candidate rival view, democratic equality. Um, no matter what views of equality you have, at some point you have to make the the difference between um, luck and choice has to come in in your construction in the, in the construction of your theory. Right. And, and, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now that you've mentioned the the alternative view, let me ask you. <laughs> uh, so um, you know, uh, those of us who've been following uh, these debates within egalitarianism um, uh, feel compelled uh, to fall on one side of the luck egalitarian democratic equality line. That is the uh, the the it seems the 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 main opposing or competing view for egalitarians. Uh, uh, the main competitor to luck egalitarianism is a view, again, associated uh, with um, Elizabeth Anderson and Sam Scheffler and others uh, that's called roughly now democratic equality. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this rival view is and what, uh, I mean, you've got a couple of, I think, very nice criticisms of this rival uh, in the book. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure, thank you. Um, well, so one way of understanding what this view is um, and, and this sort of um, 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 re- takes us back to some points we made just a couple of minutes ago. It's not that it is a view that has no use for the luck choice distinction. It's not that democratic equality makes no use of this distinction. Um, but the difference between democratic equality and luck egalitarianism, as I try to understand it, is that it gives different accounts of why is it that distributed equality amongst a group of people matters. Right? It's account, an account of the grounds of equality. Um, um, and, and, and here's the difference between um, democratic equality and lucky egalitarianism. Um, democratic equality, as I understand it, takes it that equality matters only amongst people who are in some kind of political relationship with each other, right? and, uh, and, and, and most specifically in some kind of democratic relations with one another. Equality matters only in that context when there's already a commitment to some kind of democratic relationship or democratic reciprocity amongst individuals. Right. Now, once that commitment takes off, of, um, I would argue the luck choice principle comes in, but it doesn't motivate that commitment. And what makes a luck egalitarian view a luck egalitarian view is that the luck choice principle is what motivates the commitment. Right? It takes it that, look, um, people should not be worse off because of bad luck. Now, my modification of it is that people should not be worse off because of what institutions make of their bad luck. Right? But, but basically, it's the luck choice principle that motivates the commitment to equality. 
right? And 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 whereas in the democratic equality view, it is somehow the commitment, commitment to democratic reciprocity that motivates the commitment. And I think this is a very important way of understanding the difference, um, um, if I may say so, because um, if you understand, if, if if you like, like as we said earlier, um, most equality garden views have to make some use of the large choice distinction at some point in the construction of the theory or in the application of the theory, right? So it cannot be the case that the only difference between lucky egalitarianism or the, it can't be the case that the distinguishing difference between lucky egalitarianism and democratic equality is that um, lucky egalitarianism makes use of the large choice principle, whereas democratic equality makes, use, makes no use of that at all. And the differences in how they, they motivate their different commitments to equality, how, how um, them, right, the, the role the large choice Principle plays in motivating egalitarianism in the lucky egalitarian view, and, the, and it doesn't play that role in democratic equality. But the democratic equality view is some other commitment, democratic reciprocity that motivates it. And so, a very general way of looking at the difference is that um, the democratic egalitarian view is, takes equality to be very much a political ideal. It's, a, it's an ideal, it's a com- ideal justice that takes root only amongst people who are already in some kind of shared political arrangement. Whereas the lucky guardian view, and I hold that to be an advantage, of course, this can be disputed, right? But I hold that to be an advantage, an advantage of lucky guardian view, it, it is, doesn't tie egalitarianism to, 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 pol- to political arrangements in that way. It doesn't tie, doesn't reduce, or doesn't, um, doesn't um, allow the egalitarian commitments to hinge on some um, more basic political commitments. It takes egalitarian commitments to be a basic moral commitment of this, uh, on its own right. Right? And, and this allows it, as I argue in my book, to have a global application, whereas democratic equality, um, um, in order for democratic equality to argue that equality has global scope, has to, that you have to do the uh, additional work of showing that the global arena is a political democratic society of a sort, and that's going to be quite difficult to do. Right. So let's pick up on that because this brings us to um, uh, the third the third part of the book, the part that's concerned with the the scope of distributive egalitarianism. Um, and uh, just to repeat what you were just saying, you take it as one of the main virtues of um, your um, version of luck egalitarianism, but maybe it's a virtue of luck egalitarianism as such that it's um, easy to see uh, on luck egalitarianism how um, relations uh, of justice or demands of justice or obligations uh, related to justice could exist between um, people in quite different uh, parts of the world, for example. And it looks as if the democratic egalitarian view, the competing view, will have a harder time, as you were just saying, in making sense of global uh, distributive justice commitments, because if, after all, justice is something that exists between um, uh, those who are who stand in certain kinds of uh, political relations that enable or allow them to to show a certain kind of democratic reciprocity to each other, then it looks as if uh, people in democratic societies, uh, you have to tell a different kind of story about why wealthy Western democracies owe duties of justice to uh, uh, people living in non-Western, non-democratic societies. Mm-hmm. But it looks as if, on the straightforward luck egalitarian view, um, are, uh, without the institutional component built in yet, um, that it's easy to make sense of global justice concerns because, after all, um, where geographically 
one is born is every bit as a matter of brute luck as, you know, what color one's hair is or whether someone's born with a disability or not. Um, mm -hmm. Now, so let me then, uh, having said all that, let me now um, ask about how your own institutional conception of luck egalitarianism uh, translates into a global uh, a, a view of equality with a global scope. And let me put it in the form of a kind of critique. Okay. Um, so, uh, or at least a, 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 a mild kind of challenge. Okay. It's not yet a critique. Mm -hmm. um, so it looks to me uh, um, that um, maybe intuitively the institutional focus uh, of your egalitarianism, um, namely that it's concerned with the way institutions translate uh, matters of brute luck into social advantage and disadvantage. Um, looks to me like the institutional focus might not fit together so well with a cosmopolitan or global conception uh, of the scope, maybe for roughly the kinds of reasons that you bring against the democratic egalitarian view, uh, which is to say that if luck egalitarianism is institutional um, uh, in its sight, um, then where there aren't institutions that translate matters of brute luck into advantage and disadvantage, there couldn't be concerns of justice. Um, and that looks like the situation we might be in with respect to um, uh, global justice. Does that sound like? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, so let me, um, right. So let me see how I can best respond to the very, very good, question um so let's see so one difference then this um difference between the institutional view and the democratic um view is that the institution of lucky Gautian view simply says that look so long as institutions are designed in such a way as to have that kind of impact the kind of impact being impact of translating brute luck into disadvantages to people concerns for justice arise the democratic quality view doesn't just talk about impact it says like you got democratic i'm sorry i mean this Distributed considerations arise uh, only under institutions that have certain normative characteristics, right? Um, I.e., democratic features. Um, so, in, um, so one, oh, the democratic egalitarian view would have to show not just that there's, there's that there exist institutions globally that impact people in different ways, but that these institutions can be properly described normatively as democratic institutions. Right? So, this is an important difference, right? It doesn't require that, so, so my view of lucky guardianism um, requires the existence of some kind of institutional um, mechanism in the background, um, institutional arrangements that affect people's life on account of luck, but it doesn't require that these institutions be understood, be characterized normatively as democratic institutions. There's a normative characterization uh, in the kind of institutions that there must be in order for um, justice considerations to arise. But having said all that, and the question remains, uh, what kind of institutional arrangements we have globally that affect people's lives um, in, 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 in this way that, that, that translate um, brute luck that they may have um, or simply circumstance that they find themselves to, have, to, to be in, into uh, actual advantages and disadvantages. And I say that there, there, is, um, that, there, there, there is a lot of, uh, um, in, in the world out there right? in, in, the, um, in the kinds of institutional um, 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 arrangement we, we, we live under that actually has the effect of um, translating good luck into actual social disadvantage. So imagine a person living south of a river, right? Um, a nameless river, just say, uh, and, and this is a fact of nature, and in some kind of hypothetical um, global state of nature, that fact itself is not a, it's not a just unjust. It might even be the case that 
the, 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 the terrain, the, 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 the land south of this river is uh, less fertile than land north of it. And, and, but, and, and he's doing therefore less well than people born of who find themselves north of this river. But in a state of nature, that's neither just nor unjust. It's just a fact of life. And, and we understand it to be neither just or unjust because we assume that simply this person could then just cross the river to the more fertile area if he or she wanted to. Right? But the world we live in now is not that way. Right? Um, um, we, we have boundaries. We have an a, 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 a international system that, 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 that allows states to guard their borders. Um, and that 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 this is an institutional arrangement, I'll say, that has now turned this what might otherwise be a mere brute um, luck fact, a brute luck a fact about a person being born south of the river. Um, that uh, that fact is now translated into a question of justice because there are institutions in place that he's that he's obliged to comply with that says to him he may not just willy-nilly cross over to the more fertile side of the river. He may not do that. Because that's this belongs to another country, and he belongs to a different country, and the borders that would stop him from doing so. So, so just the fact of territorial boundaries, right, of states having the right to regulate who comes in, that alone, I think, is one. Let's give just one example of the kind of um, global arrangement we have that has the tendency of turning um, what might otherwise be brute law and of no consequence for justice into a matter of justice, right? Because these um, these institutions now trust turn certain natural facts into matters of justice by saying to people, look, you have to watch where you go, you have to be in certain places, you have to respect property rights of people on, on the Southern River because there's a different nation or different terrain, um, territory and we um, and and you um, have no right to come over. Right? So a natural fact has now become, it's now a matter of justice precisely because of institution arrangements. And there are other examples that I try to give in the book of uh, other um, uh, of, of other um, Norms, international norms, and 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 and, um, and principles, of international relations that are in in place that that have the effect of um, turning what would otherwise be brute um, luck into actual social advantage or disadvantage for people. Okay, well that's very good, and it it does turn on a um, a conception of what an institution is that mm-hmm. um, is is a little bit more expansive than what one might have thought given. The emphasis on the basic structure, where it looks as if, um, uh, when you're discussing the site of right. of egalitarianism, institutions there mean sort of things that we consciously build, things that um, deliberately or in some decided way make these transfers of you know facts about the world into social advantages and disadvantages. And now it looks as if, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily a problem. It's mm-hmm. just uh, now it looks as if institutions. Uh, the term is being used in a in a in a broader sense right. to include things like norms, right? Uh, yes. You know, if you're a country, you get to, or if you're a territory, it doesn't have to be a state. There could be institutions, even if there are no states, if there are yeah. norms in place where you know your your little territory, you get to decide what the what to do with the resources on it, and not someone else. Um, let me um, uh, 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 move on, though. This is a a, 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 a fascinating question, but I wanted to. Um, make sure we had uh, had time uh, to discuss um, one of the topics that's central to the um, uh, debates about egalitarianism as they've been conducted in the last fifteen to twenty years, um, which you you set aside in the book, right. um, and that's the equality of what debate. So as you know, um, you know you can have what 
different theorists have different views about what the, as it were, the, the currency is of egalitarianism. Is it resources? Is it welfare? Is it capabilities? Is it opportunities for welfare? Yeah. Um, and the, the discussions get uh, uh, rather uh, uh, complex uh, very quickly uh, in this matter. But you you say a couple times in the book yes. that you're going to set aside equal, the equality of what debate and your um, ambition is to give um, a conception of the site, the ground, and the scope of egalitarianism that remains neutral with respect right. to the currency question. What 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 are we distributing when we're distributing something equally? Um, and I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, that's a very thorny debate. I can understand why one might try to figure out other things about equality before getting into the question of um, the currency of equality. But um, let me just, again, pose as a, as, as a sort of uh, half-formed challenge. Yes. One might think, and maybe with some plausibility, that um, as a methodological point or as a point of the sort of proper order of analysis, as people used to say, um, that getting clear on what distributive equality aims to distribute what kind of entity uh, uh, it's interested in um, giving equal shares to uh, uh, distributing equal, equal shares of. Maybe that's the kind of question that has to be answered first before we can talk about, well, what does the distributing, uh, how deep does the distribution go and does the distribution apply across uh, political borders and boundaries? That is maybe someone might think that the equality of what debate is the first Right. matter on the agenda for egalitarianism. Um, could you speak a little bit to this? Right. No, that's a good question. And um, it's, a, it's a very challenging question. So, um, so let me think through this as I, as I <laughs> speak, I guess. Um, so when I noted that my um, discussion is neutral on this question, I um, do not mean to say that um, what this, the, the solutions we give to this site ground and scope question will not generate a response to the what question, right? So I want to say that we can get started on the site um, ground and scope question without setting that first, and that regard is neutral. But I want to argue that once we set on the site ground and scope question, we can actually have a view on what the proper um, um, metric of equality should be. Now, okay, so, so just for example, we agree that equality's site should be, sorry, um, should be institutions, right? That's just supposed to be take that to be the case, then it suggests right away that uh, welfare, right, to say that, look, it should be just happiness across the board, right? Which straight away, I think we sort of ruled out that response um, mm -hmm. uh, quite naturally because that, that view, the welfare guidance view, is just very incompatible with the side question. So once you say that, look, here's the reason why the side of equality should be institutions and should be institutions for this reason, right? Again, um, allowing for differences in conception of good and allowing space for personal pursuits uh, on terms of fair free with regard to others, then this straight um, takes us away from a welfare egalitarian view, uh, I would say, right? That that um that um that that it sort of sort of inclines us towards something more like a resource view than a than a welfare view. Right. So so one of the things I want to argue in this book is that although people may think that the matrix question, the question of what does it want to distribute may have to come first, I, I, will, I was trying to suggest that um, if we settle the site, ground, and scope question, first, we may actually have a, 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 a clearer sense as to what the proper um, uh, currency of equality should be. 
Now, having said all that, right, I, um, I also try to suggest in the book that a case for um, luck egalitarianism, right, um, um, the not required, it's, it's not, um, doesn't ride on, right, that um, this doesn't ride on a pre-commitment to any, res- uh, any, any um, unit of equality. Um, it, I, I argue that uh, even one were to be a egalitarian, right? um, case for luck egalitarianism, aspect, and in particular understood in a modest way, I argue um, remains. Right? So in that, in that respect, it's neutral. But again, once you have the complete uh, terrain of equality, as I've attempted to sketch on a book on the site, ground, and scope, uh, my, incl- my, my hunch is that, yeah, I've not worked this out, my, 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 my inclination is to say that once we do that, um, we'll be coming closer towards a resource view rather than a welfare view of equality. Um, now, of course, that, and then, of course, as you mentioned, this is a big debate, and there are, of course, uh, uh, independent arguments uh, one, one can give for each of these positions. Um, now, the welfare view, the straightforward welfare view, I think, is very much um, um, well, that the, 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 the business equality is to maximize welfare, subjective welfare. That's, that seems to be um, a problematic account on its own, right? It's subject of various problems, including the problem of expensive taste, right? If I expensive uh, more resources because of my expensive taste, then on the welfare garden view, I should be given more resources because I need more to make me happy and you can be happy with less, therefore you should get less. Right? So that's an independent concern with the welfare view. Um, um, so I've, I've not gone to any of that in the book, um, but I, my, my sense is that, I, that um, once we get clear on the site, ground, and scope view, the, so these questions, I think, will be, the questions about the matrix, the, the, the currency quality, hopefully will be Clarified, um, um, right? So I'm not sure if I answered the question. I guess the the the, the, the way of um, answering this challenge, which is which is a very good one, um, is, is, is to us. Suppose we agree that say something else, like um, capability, right, uh, as developed by Amajit Sen and Martha Nussbaum, is the proper matrix of equality. How would that change um, the discussion in my book on the site, ground, and scope? And right now, the capability, I think, is a more plausible view of, of the matrix of equality than, say, simple, um, than, than, than the simple uh, welfare view. Um, now, so that's a more plausible, plausible kind of um, the currency of equality, the capability view. Now, I would want to argue that this will not change questions with any of the discussion on the site, ground, and scope. Right? Um, um, after all, we, again, capability um, egalitarians or people concerned about capability will have to also make space of personal freedom and therefore they would have to accept the the um, limited side of equality focusing it on institutions um, they would have to have an account of why equality matters and the kind of considerations are raised in favor of lucky egalitarianism thing should should be with some modification apply in that in their case too um, and that um, I think there should be um, all the more I think uh, concerned that equality has global scope. Uh, so well, that, that that seems right about the the capability yes. theorists who um you know part of what's interesting about um the debate between the capabilities uh theorists and the resources is that at the end of the day it's at least to me not clear how much of a difference there is between them there are different nuances yes. um but I do think that um mm-hmm. for the more sophisticated welfareists out there mm-hmm. um the sort of um opportunity for welfare yeah. types yeah. um 
someone could, and this is a much longer debate that, 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 than we could get into now, but somebody of this, this more sophisticated welfareist um, uh, uh, view could just um, you know, run the modus tollens version and just say, well, that your view um, of settling or trying to get clear on the site, ground, and scope questions first winds up showing that welfareists, um, that this is not a promising account of equality. Mm-hmm. Well, that just shows the problems with trying to settle the site, ground, and scope question right. before you settle the currency question, right? Yes. Yes. Um, but again, this is, uh, uh, this is much more than one can, uh, can get into. Yeah. No, thanks for raising that. Yes, I yeah no, I, I just stressed that, that in my comments earlier that that was talking about a, a, a straightforward, a simple welfare egalitarian view. But the more sophisticated ones, um, as you mentioned, um, uh, developed by people like um, Richard Arneson and even G. A. Cohen himself, who has a view that he calls excess to advantage, which is a kind of welfare view, but sophisticated one, um, will certainly have, uh, certainly reckon with these ones. But again, I would say that look, if we have a more sophisticated welfare view, like Cohen's access to advantage, then again, I want to argue that when we talk about access to advantage, what kind of advantage are we talking about? How do we um, operationalize that, if you, if you like? And I think, again, be institutionally given as to what kinds of advantages we have, right? So that this, this again, I think, suggests a site, an institutional site, sorry, mm-hmm. for justice. But anyway, I, I, I cut you off. I'm sorry. I, no, no, it's okay. Um, yeah. This is uh, the beginning of, uh, of, 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 of a really uh, exciting uh, conversation uh, stimulated by a really excellent uh, book. I have to say once again that uh, kind of, uh, yeah. uh, Justice, Institutions, and Luck is a really, really fantastic uh, a book. And um, I would even say that one of its uh, uh, real virtues is that um, one walks away from it, even if one uh, picked it up without knowing much about what's been going on in the debates over egalitarianism. Uh, not only does the book um, develop a very compelling set of views about what egalitarians should think, it also, I think, gives readers who might not otherwise know much about these debates um, a real solid uh, uh, survey of uh, of the terrain of the debates. Um, so uh, that's a, a philosophical uh, achievement on two on two levels. So uh, having said that. Um, What's next for you, Kakchor? What are you What are you working on or thinking about now? Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I so to think of two um, projects, longer term projects, a book book length project at the moment. Um, um, and this is just a very uh, initial exploratory stages of, of for both of these. So one has to do with um, problems of global justice under non ideal conditions. Right. So I've written about global justice, as I mentioned at the start of this interview, and all, the, the, these, uh, these, these writings of global justice mainly have been focused on identifying ideal principles of global justice. Um, what I'm doing next now is to look at what happens when these principles are complied with, what happens when these principles have been violated in the past. Right? So these were introduced questions of reparations, interventions, um, um, responses to um, 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 uh, world poverty, and so on. So, 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 so it's this discussion of um, responsibilities of individuals and states under conditions of injustice, right? When, when, when principles that we think of that, that, that we should have in a world are not present or are not complied with, what kinds of responsibilities we have. Um, so this, this is one project on uh, problems of global justice under non-ideal conditions. Um, the other project um, is more broadly on moral philosophy, and it uh, has to do with relation ships and morality. So that's the, the, the question um, one wants to ask in this project is what kinds, what 
um, what is it about certain kinds of relationships people have uh, between friends or family members or colleagues and so on that, that, that generate special concerns and obligations for people in their relationship? Or what is it about this relationship that, that, that gives rise to these special commitments? And secondly, how do we understand the limits of these special commitments? Right? At what point does, say, um, kinship um, um, degenerates into nepotism or or friendship into um, friendship into cronyism? Right? Or, or mm. we understand. So if we understand, so we agree that friendship is valuable. What is it about friendship that renders these special concerns among friends important and valuable? And at the same time, what is it? How do we know when the show of special concern among, say, friends is illegitimate and in violation of certain moral norms and norms of justice. So that's the the project and the second project that I'm starting to think about. Well, both of those sound uh, really uh, interesting, and um, uh, I'll keep an eye out for uh, your work on those uh, those two topics and. Um, uh, maybe when uh, when one of those books comes out, we can have you back uh, for an interview uh, uh, on new books in philosophy. But uh, for now, uh, Kakchor, you've been very, very generous with your time. Um, we've uh, held you here for a little bit longer than, than normal, but um, it was very, very, uh, 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 very enlightening uh, discussion uh, of your book, uh, Justice, Institutions, and Luck, The Site, Ground, and Scope of Equality. Um, thank you so much for your time. Well, I thank you, Bob. Thank you for for, um, for the invitation to um to to talk to you. Um, and I um, enjoyed the discussion very much. And thanks very much for your very very good questions. I'll continue to think about many of them. So thanks very much, Bob. Excellent. Take care now. Thank you very much. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Kok Chortan of the University of Pennsylvania. We were talking about his new book, Justice, Institutions, and Luck which was published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.